The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome a colleague of mine, a fellow registered dietitian, Jean Lamantia. She is an author, speaker, and cancer survivor. She is based in Toronto, Ontario. She practices in both the U.S. and Canada. Jean was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma at age 27 and has dedicated her career to helping others survive cancer treatment as well as prevent cancer. Jean received her education in nutrition at the University of Guelph in Ontario. She completed her dietetic internship at the Toronto Western Hospital. She has over 20 years of experience helping people to achieve their nutrition goals. She has researched and written books on the subjects of nutrition for cancer and lymphedema, entitled The Essential Cancer Treatment Nutrition Guide and Cookbook, The Complete Lymphedema Management and Nutrition Guide, and most recently, a fabulous book on intermittent fasting. She has also created a food and lifestyle guide designed to help cancer survivors reduce their risk of recurrence, and it's titled The Cancer Risk Reduction Guide. We are going to dive into the keys of cancer risk reduction, and we are going to specifically be talking about reducing inflammation and intermittent fasting. And this is timed so perfectly, Jane, because we are entering a new year and people, I think, are looking for ways to stay well and tweak their diet a little bit going forward. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. You gave a great talk for a professional group and you spoke about anti-inflammation and how to eat to reduce inflammation. And your research really blew me away. I had no idea that the cover of Time magazine in 2004, the headline was Inflammation, the Secret Killer. Tell me what you've learned about inflammation and why we need to know about it. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I just find inflammation just seems to be at the root of a lot of problems. And specifically, I look at inflammation through a cancer lens. And you know, when you look at cancer close up, you see it has a life cycle. So it starts with that initiation stage. So you have a normal cell, and then there's a switch that's turned, and that switch is some DNA damage, and that's called initiation. So the cell goes from being normal to being essentially a cancer cell. And what that means is that cancer cell, it has some wiring that overrides the programming that says, okay, you only live a certain lifespan, and then you die off. And this DNA damage says, no, 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 we're not dying off. We're just going to keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And so then it multiplies, then it invades the tissue, then it goes through angiogenesis, so it, it creates its own direct blood supply, and then the final stage is metastases are spread. And when you add inflammation, so you create this environment of inflammation when it accelerates all of those stages in the life cycle of the cancer cell. And so many inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, 
GERD, as in gastroesophageal reflux disease, which we often call heartburn or COPD, chronic obstructive lung disease. These are all inflammatory conditions, and it turns out that they are all linked with higher rates of cancer. And the one thread that weaves through all of this is inflammation. So inflammation of those conditions seems to be the trigger that increases the risk to cancer. Mm. And I remember you also mentioned obesity. And when I remember learning the same thing you did and having this aha moment that fat in our body is really an endocrine organ and that it causes inflammation. And so when we learn about how obesity is a risk factor for cancer, we didn't really understand maybe why that was so much, but the inflammation piece of that makes sense. Absolutely. I read recently that the fat is the largest endocrine organ in the body. And yeah, it just really sunk in for me. Yeah, so you've got this fat cell, especially like the visceral fat, so that deeper abdominal fat, which is why waist circumference is a risk factor for cancer, Mm. right? So that deep abdominal fat is just putting out these messengers, otherwise known as cytokines, into the body saying, create inflammation. And again, if there is even a few cancer cells in the body, which apparently we all have them, right? they're going to grow and follow that life cycle more in that environment of inflammation. Well, it was interesting. I just want to pull out a few things that you said for this talk, because they really were so, they were like light bulb moments. You know, when you spoke about GERD, a lot of people living in the United States suffer with heartburn. I think at one time I knew the statistic on how many people are relying on anti-heartburn medications. It's quite a bit. And when you were talking about how a high-fat diet leads to an increase in bile acids and those cause inflammation and how GERD can increase the risk of esophageal cancer, all those pieces sort of came together about, oh, this is a really serious illness beyond the discomfort of having heartburn. Absolutely. And I know for some people it's hereditary, so they may get it at a younger age, which is even more dangerous because you may have read that it might take 10 or 15 years for cancer to develop. So the younger you start with the heartburn, the more time that cancer has to grow and get to a noticeable tumor. And unfortunately, esophageal cancer does not have a good prognosis. Mm. So the treatment outcome is really not great. So you're right. And I think maybe it's because so many people have GERD that it's not maybe taken so seriously. They might lay off some spicy food or something or take some antacids, but I don't think they're thinking of it as, oh my goodness, this is a chronic condition that could lead to esophageal cancer, which is incredibly hard to treat and potentially lethal. So I think it's important for all the dietitians out there who work in that field with GI patients to realize this is not just treating that pain. It's a chronic disease that has a lot of dangerous implications. Right. It's not just take a couple of Tums and you'll be fine. This is something that really needs to be addressed. The other thing that you said that I thought was fascinating was how do we measure inflammation in the body? And there are different markers that when we go in, we have our blood drawn. They're not typically assessed when you go in for, you know, in the United States, you typically get 15 minutes with your care provider. I think in Canada, it's probably a lot more humane. 
These tests cost a lot of money. Oftentimes, maybe insurance will cover it, maybe it won't. But the idea of having the C-reactive protein measured and knowing to ask our doctors when we go in for our annual exams, hey, could you run one of these tests? I want to see what my measure of inflammation is in the body. Would you recommend the C-reactive protein as the best way to measure the inflammation? Yeah, I think the C-reactive protein and also another test called HSCRP, which stands for high sensitivity CRP. I think those are both pretty good. And it just reminds me of that Time magazine cover, The Secret Killer. You can have chronic inflammation in your body and not know it. Sure, we've talked about examples where you would feel it. Like if you have rheumatoid arthritis, you know it. If you have heartburn, you know it. If you have abdominal obesity, you know it. But there can also be silent inflammation in the body. And so that's where the blood test really comes in handy. But I do want to caution, and because you did mention, you know, it could be expensive or it might not be covered by insurance. So what I always tell my clients is whether you get the blood test or not, I would still want you on an anti-inflammatory diet. Because some people can feel very frustrated or upset with their medical provider or their insurance if the answer to their request to have it tested is no. But what I would say, I want you to do this diet anyway. The one benefit that it has is it will allow you to track, right? So Mm -hmm. if you have your CRP and then six months or a year later you have it done again, you can see the beneficial results of your dietary changes that you've implemented. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. I was thinking the same thing, actually. It's sort of a preventive for many diseases. So let's go ahead and do it, whether or not you can track the improvements or not. Just know that those improvements are going on in your body. The other thing that you mentioned that I thought was fascinating about the C-reactive protein is that in people who have had prostate cancer, the C-reactive protein was a better measure of survivorship over the PSA. Exactly. And the Gleason score too. So and any prostate cancer patient you talk to, they'll know their Gleason score and they'll know their PSA. Mm-hmm. Do they know their CRP? No. Right. <laughs> so it's funny that it's in the research, but it hasn't quite trickled down into everyday practice yet. Yeah. All right. So I'm sure everyone is waiting, sitting at the edge of their chair, wanting to know what an anti-inflammatory diet looks like. Do you want to maybe dive into some of the keys to that? Okay, yeah, absolutely. So there are certain parts of the diet that are particularly anti-inflammatory. So for example, the type of fatty acid will make a difference whether your food is inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. So this is where label reading really comes in. So as your listeners probably know, so when you eat fat in your diet, so you have some mayonnaise, you have some olive oil or some butter, your body breaks that fat down into individual fatty acid so that those smallest components can then be absorbed through the intestine and into the blood. And some fatty acids are more likely to increase inflammation and some are more likely to decrease it. So the Anti-inflammatories are omega-3 fatty acid, which as soon as I say that, probably your listeners are thinking about salmon. Mm -hmm. But salmon, sardines, herring, mackerel, rainbow trout. 
So the fatty fishes, otherwise known as the cold water fishes, those are an excellent source. There's a few plant sources as well, like ground flax seeds and walnuts. And then the other one is omega-9 fatty acids. So it's most famous in olive oil. It's also in avocado oil. And then I'm not sure if you've discussed this with some of your other guests, but there's now newer versions of safflower and sunflower seed oil. So traditionally, when safflower and sunflower seeds were harvested and pressed into seed oils, that oil was very high in omega-6 fatty acid. But through traditional plant breeding, not genetic engineering, a seed strain has developed where it's higher in omega-9 fatty acid. And that particular fatty acid is called oleic acid. And so if you read your labels, you'll see this on bottles of oil, you'll see it on ingredient lists, things like crackers, you might see it, or tortillas. You'll read the ingredients, it'll say high oleic sunflower oil or high oleic safflower oil. That means that oil has a high amount of oleic fatty acid, which is the same fatty acid that gives olive oil all its beneficial properties. So that's one important factor for determining if your food is inflammatory or Mm anti-inflammatory. So ones that are high in omega-3 and omega-9 are anti-inflammatory and omega-6 is inflammatory. So that would be more like your corn oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil. Mm-hmm. Other things that make a difference would be the antioxidant content of the food. And so that's things like berries and melon and citrus and carrots and squash and sweet potatoes, green leafy vegetables, all those brightly colored fruits and vegetables. Fiber is also anti-inflammatory. Various phytonutrients are anti-inflammatory. So if you add all those individual things together... What you can picture is that traditional Mediterranean diet. Mm-hmm. So it's not the, the Greek souvlaki with rice and potato and white bread diet, mm-hmm. right? You get in your time machine, you go back to the island of Crete in Greece in 1970, which was the year of the seven country study. And when you read the description of the diet at that time, it was lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, seafood, and although they don't eat a lot of salmon in the Mediterranean, they eat sardines, they eat anchovies, which are both high omega-3 fishes. It was red meat occasionally. It was olive oil as the main oil. So you really get the picture of that traditional Mediterranean diet. And so that's a good pattern to visualize when you think about what does the actual diet, not just the individual foods, look like. Mm-hmm. That is great overarching advice. We need to take one break because we're halfway through. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Jean Lamantia. She is a registered dietitian, author, speaker, cancer survivor. She's based in Toronto. She practices in the U.S. and Canada. And we are speaking specifically about how to reduce our risk for cancer, looking at choosing an anti-inflammatory diet. And we are also going to dive into intermittent fasting. Before we get there, though, Jane, I want to mention something else that you brought up that I love. It was some advice on how to reduce inflammation. And you spoke about the use of herbs and spices and how you encourage people to use more herbs and spices every day with every meal. One of my favorite topics, yes. I think people forget about this, and it's so easy 
just to add more herbs and spices. And a lot of recipes, they'll say one small onion, you know, one clove of garlic. Well, double up, you know, use twice as much. So those are great. Use basil, oregano, probably the top three are garlic, ginger, turmeric, but also chilies, chili flakes, hot sauce, saffron, thyme, oregano, rosemary, all of those. I really encourage when I'm working with my client on the phone and I'm getting the diet history and maybe they've done a food record for me and it might say something like, oh, I don't know, chicken casserole or beef stew or, you know, something like that. And I'll say, well, tell me how you made that. And I'll want to hear exactly what went into it. And I'm listening to hear them say garlic, ginger, uh, onion, and all those spices. And I'll talk about, you know, what spices do you use usually? Okay, I want you to add lots of those. And I usually challenge them that every meal, I would like them to use an herb or spice. Yeah. Even breakfast. You know, they can add cinnamon to their yogurt or whatever they're having at breakfast. Right. Well, and I think, too, it's so nice to have, even if you don't have a garden spot, just to have some pots of herbs on your kitchen window And then you can just snip what you want. And the fresher, the better. I think one of the questions you had received in your talk was specifically about how to use these spices and herbs. And you brought up a really good point. Oh, they asked whether fresh was best. And you said, well, you know, the stuff that's three years old in your cabinet probably isn't going to be helpful. And I think that happens to a lot of us. You know, we buy a jar of something and we think, oh, yeah, it'll be good for this one recipe. And then it just sort of lingers there. So Another good thing maybe to do in the new year is to reassess that spice cabinet and get rid of the old and usher in the new and think about having some pots of fresh herbs. Oregano winters over really well, as does rosemary. So just a little tip for our listeners on how dietitians might implement some of these things that you're recommending. I want to dive into intermittent fasting. I also, like you, am fascinated with it. You on your website took a deep dive into some biblical fasting, and you looked at the different aspects through the ages, and I was just amazed. Tell me how you became interested in intermittent fasting, and what do you tell your clients about it? Right. So I became interested when I was writing my book, The Complete Lymphedema Management and Nutrition Guide. So for your listeners that aren't familiar, lymphedema is a chronic swelling condition. Now, people can be born with this, like it can appear at birth, or people can be born with a sluggish lymphatic system, and then it develops at some point in girls, usually around puberty, or people can develop it secondary to surgery. So, for example, breast cancer. So, a woman or man, for that matter, who has breast cancer may have lymph nodes removed because that's a common area for breast cancer to spread, is it spreads into the lymph nodes that are in the armpit. So those are often removed as a preventive measure. And then what can happen without those lymph nodes, the lymphatic fluid doesn't drain properly, and so that arm can swell up. So they might have a normal, let's say, left arm, but if the lymph nodes were removed from the right armpit, then the right arm could be 20% bigger. And it can be uncomfortable and tingling. So it it can be very troublesome. And when I was researching lymphedema and the nutrition strategies for lymphedema, one thing that kept coming up is lymphedema is an inflammatory condition. So there's a lot of inflammation in that area. And the lymphatics need time to drain. 
And so because they're also throughout the GI tract, you know, I just read like one paper talking about, well, what creates more lymphatic fluid? And it said eating. Eating creates more lymphatic fluid. So I started thinking, well, of course, we can't tell people with lymphedema not to eat anymore. But then I got onto this idea, well, what about intermittent fasting? What if we give the lymphatic system at least 12 hours to clear out all that lymphatic fluid that was produced from the meal? And so the particular type of intermittent fasting I recommend for lymphedema is called time-restricted feeding. So what you do with this is you basically, you think of your day as 24 hours, and you think of it as a period of fasting and a period of eating. And so what you want to do at minimum, you want to split your day in half so that you have a 12-hour eating window and 12-hour fasting window. That would be step one. And interesting, in some of the research I read, people will say, oh, I only eat three meals a day. But then when they gave them this app and they asked them to track and the app sent them prompts and said, have you eaten in the last 20 minutes? And they had to respond. What they actually found was their eating window was 15 hours long. In fact, the only time they weren't eating was like 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so sometimes there's this odd little bit of snacking that goes on in the evening and that counts. So as I say, 12 hours is step one. And then you just continue to shorten that eating window. And there's some evidence that making your dinner earlier is the better approach because then you're aligning your body with your circadian rhythm. Right. So your circadian rhythm is that it's detected by an area in your brain that detects the light levels and the dark levels. And according to that, it will be at its peak for metabolism or it'll be going into kind of sleep mode. And so if you're eating as it's going into sleep mode, then there's more fat storage that's happening. So you want to align your eating window with the, the day and night cycle. That's a good first step. And that's how I got into intermittent fasting is really when researching the best approaches for lymphedema. Mm. So let's say we're going to set up an ideal situation with regard to intermittent fasting. And I have seen some data on breast cancer reduction. In fact, I interviewed Dorothy Sears, who had been, I believe, in California. I think she's now affiliated with a hospital in Arizona. She presented at our Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting, our annual event, and she was saying that a 13 to 13 and a half hour window of fasting was related to a 36% reduction in recurrence of breast cancer. And I was amazed that something as simple as intermittent fasting could have such a remarkable positive effect on reducing cancer risk. So I'm always wondering, you know, what is the best eating window and fasting window if you had to design the most ideal? You know, I shoot for 13 to 13 and a half hours, but have you seen data that says, no, shrink it even more? So there's different methods of intermittent fasting and all the research is very, it's a big mishmash jumble of stuff because some of them use the time-restricted feeding, some of them, often in the research, they tend to use an eight-hour window and even with the eight-hour window, some of the studies say, okay, well, you have to eat between noon and 8 p.m. Others say, well, you just pick whatever eight-hour window you want. Some of them use other methods of intermittent fasting like 
alternate daily fasting where you fast one day, you eat normally the next day. Probably the most research is done on a protocol called 5-2, where you fast for two days a week and you eat normally five days of the week. But even then, there's some of those 5-2 are two consecutive days. Some are two non-consecutive days. Most of them use what's called a modified fast, where it's not water only. You get to have about 500 calories a day. So there's not been a study that did a head-to-head comparison of all of the different methods. But ultimately, I would say, do the method that works best for you and fits best into your life. Because I really think intermittent fasting can be a new lifestyle and not just this kind of diet that you have to white knuckle your way through all day. I agree. I think it's probably, for me personally, I find that the time-restricted feeding is probably the easiest to maintain, especially when you're living with other people who want to be eating. So it's not like, well, this is my day to fast totally, but I'm smelling food and having those hormonal responses as a result of that. I feel like you can still maintain some sort of eating normality, but you're just taking care of when not to eat. And I agree with you. I saw also the circadian rhythm and I thought, oh, that's another factor that we need to add into the equation. Absolutely. And I agree with you 100%. I think the time-restricted feeding is probably one of the easier protocols and it would be certainly one I would recommend people start with. Yeah. They've never done intermittent fasting before. And even at that, I would say go into it gradually. You know, people will say, oh, I'm going to do 18-6 tomorrow. Well, what that means is 18 hours of fasting, a six-hour eating window, or I'm going to do 24, which means 20 hours fasting, four-hour eating window. I mean, you can be hungry, you can get headaches, you can just be cranky, but if you do it gradually, you allow your body to adapt to what's called the metabolic switch. So what happens is after 12 hours of not having anything, well, you could have water or tea, let's say, or coffee, then your body has depleted the blood sugar levels and depleted the liver glycogen store. So that's the stored form of sugar in the liver. And now your insulin levels are starting to go down because if blood sugar is low, then insulin comes down. And then what happens is the body's like, oh, I've used up all this blood sugar. I need another fuel source. And so then what it does, it turns to fat and it burns fat for fuel. And then that process produces ketones. So when that happens, you're said to be in ketosis. And so that metabolic switch, that's the magic. Mm. And so people who are what's called metabolically flexible can switch from using glucose as the main fuel to using fat as the main fuel. Mm. And in the intermittent fasting world, they call that being fat adapted. And when you become fat adapted, you have less of those side effects. And so... I think you want to move into intermittent fasting gradually to get less of the hunger and the lightheadedness and the headaches and just make it easy on yourself. Jean, we are out of time, unfortunately. I am going to have to have you come back. We are going to have to dive more deeply into the wonderful new book you wrote about specifically intermittent fasting and so that our listeners can learn more about this fantastic health tool. 
But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, a fantastic registered dietitian, Jean Lamantia, author, speaker, cancer survivor based in Toronto, Canada. And Jean, I will provide a link to your website. And thank you so much for being such a great dietitian and sharing the wealth of information that you have. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. 